Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. This week on BNN News, we start in the seaport where protesters disrupted business as usual to bring an end to the use of fossil fuels. No new gas, no new oil. Keep the carbon in the soil. Early Wednesday, climate activist group Extinction Rebellion coordinated efforts to shut down traffic in Boston during morning rush hours. Activists set up blockades in the seaport, as well as off-ramps I-90 East and I-93 North to demand an end to new fossil fuel infrastructure in Massachusetts. Marching, chanting, they made their presence known throughout downtown Boston with signs, banners, and a band in tow. A little civil disobedience to bring attention to the climate emergency impacting the globe. With current projections, sea levels are expected to rise by 2050, enough to cover this entire neighborhood. Boston has just poured a huge amount of money into investing in this area, and it's all going to be underwater. That could be money that could be invested in sustainable infrastructure. Instead, there's new fossil fuel infrastructure that's being in, built outside of Boston in Massachusetts State in the Peabody area. That's why we're putting this on to raise more awareness that fossil fuel infrastructure has to stop being built now. We really need to take emergency action now. We are in an emergency which is global, national, and local right here in Boston. We have a drought in Massachusetts. We have a rising sea level, which will be very disruptive within the next 10 years if we don't really begin to take action now. Well, we're already seeing what happens if we don't take it seriously. It's uh, these, the storms that we're getting across the planet are, are gaining in frequency, they're gaining in strength, um, and it's only going to get worse. We, we really thought that the scientists were saying that these storms weren't going to hit until 2030, 2040, 50, and here it is 2022 and they're starting to happen already. We move now to South Boston, where a community pays tribute to their fallen Vietnam soldiers and veterans. Gone but not forgotten. On Sunday, the families of the 25 men from South Boston who gave their lives in the Vietnam War were honored at the 41st anniversary of the South Boston Vietnam Memorial. The rededication ceremony, held at Medal of Honor Park, featured a keynote speech from USS Constitution Commander Billy J. Farrell of the U.S. Navy, with Mayor Wu and Governor Baker in attendance. South Boston is home to one of the first memorial for Vietnam veterans, dedicated in 1981, predating the National Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. I think we have to remember what these names on the memorial behind us mean. These fellows paid the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. And at the time, it wasn't a very popular war. And we just want to make sure that everyone remembers them for what they've done. And that's why we try to come here every year and honor, honor them in their sacrifice. You can't give any more to your country than your life. Just as it says on the monument, if you forget my death, then I died in vain. Those of us in South Boston that served during the Vietnam War have... Um, Remembered all our friends, the 24 or 5 names that are on this monument. It's been our thing for now 39 years we've been doing this, and we'll keep doing it till the day we all die and there's none of us left. As we stand here today, let us not forget the sacrifice or those that died, and especially let us not forget those they left behind in our care. Behind every member of our armed forces is a family that supports them 
and carries the burden of not knowing if a loved one will return home. Mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, siblings, friends, to name a few, support our service so we can do the mission the nation needs. Also in Southie, residents and local businesses came together at the South Boston Street Festival. Southie was filled with the sounds of live music and lively people at the 22nd annual South Boston Street Festival on Sunday. Residents and visitors alike came down to East Broadway to eat, shop, and enjoy the fruits of their community. Over a hundred local businesses, artists, and community organizations were present. Two stages showcased local musicians and dance troupes, such as Wood School of Irish Dance and Miss Lynn Dance, which gave spirited performances. The festival gives residents and local businesses the chance to build connections and a more unified community. The energy is unmatched here and everyone's just excited to be outside and learn more about the local shops and I think it's so important to support local businesses especially after COVID and it really shows that people want to um, you know come together again and really get to know each other in the neighborhood. Yeah, show, today showing off our town, being able to welcome people from all over the state, all over the world to South Boston and show them how much, you know, we love and respect this city and, you know, there's so much tradition here and just, it keeps growing. It's such a beautiful neighborhood with beautiful people, um, kids, young college kids, everybody kind of feels like a family here. This festival brings people together. It's one of the main events of the year people from South Boston when they see each other maybe they haven't seen each other in over a year but this festival brings them together it's an opportunity to say hello to your neighbors to meet new people and to welcome people into the neighborhood while supporting our small businesses South Boston is about bringing people together next at the waterfront the AmeriCorps seniors celebrated 50 years of community service the best way they know how On Lawn on D, seniors got their groove on at the AmeriCorps Senior Ball this weekend. The Age Strong Commission hosted the annual luncheon as a way to honor their 300 volunteers. AmeriCorps seniors and ASC have dedicated the last 50 years to caring for the seniors of Boston. Their two programs, RSVP and the Senior Companions, serve as a way for seniors to stay active and engaged in their neighborhoods. Whether you are a senior or community member, there was plenty of dancing and laughing to go around for the supportive cause. I think it's very important to be out with other people, especially after COVID. We were locked in. Some people were just on Zoom every day, but with the seniors now, be able to get out, go to the movies, go to parks, and come to things like this, events, I think it's the most important thing of our lives. It keeps us young, it keeps us going, and it keeps us happy. It is so important that our seniors come out and be a part of events like this. A-Strong is phenomenal, and all the work that they're doing is for us. Our physical health, our mental health is critical for us to come together and be a part of this sort of an event. I love it. I'm 71 and I'm loving the life that we have here. I think often people look at older adults and they think, you know, maybe they're people that need help. But these volunteers here, we have 
We have 355 and over volunteers who work with us in AmeriCorps Seniors, and they are just incredible. They're making a huge difference in the city. They're impacting people's lives. They're out there uh, bringing folks food and helping people get to appointments and helping to read fo folks read their mail and making sure that the community has what it's need it needs. They're really strengthening our community in Boston. Finally, culture and cuisine reign supreme at the Boston Local Food Festival in the heart of the city. Number one sauce in America, best chicken wing you ever had. If you don't like it, you could throw my uncle in the trash. Hot sauce and seafood and produce, oh my. Rose Kennedy Greenway served up New England's largest one-day farmer's market on Sunday. Over 50,000 food lovers came out for the 12th annual Boston Local Food Festival. Sustainability was front and center as visitors got their full of the healthy and delicious at the zero-waste event. Attendees learned from cooking demonstrations, shopped food items from 90 New England businesses, and enjoyed each other's company while partaking in fun activities. But at the heart of this eating extravaganza are the stories we tell through food, culture, and community while boosting economy. We are encouraging people to try other ethnic cuisines without being feeling, you know, intimidated. And in, in the opposite is we are empowering them in the kitchen to feel more confident and be like, I made this and this is yummy. <laughs> so the idea for us is to expand the tables instead of building walls and really celebrate and start the conversation about our immigrant communities in the U.S. and what makes this country so unique and then celebrating that through food with one lemon at a time. Imagine if we all shifted like 50% of our purchasing behavior locally. We can really make a huge difference on, on climate as well as the uh, local economy. And that's really one of the visions yeah. of the festival. I think it just shows all the diversity in such a small little area. Um, and it, you can experience their cultures. I mean, just right down there, someone's selling spices, which is really awesome. Um, so I feel like it just brings in the community, gets you to know your neighbor a lot more. Tonight for BNN News Interviews, Cindy Long, Administrator of U.S. Department of Agriculture, Food and Nutrition Services, was in town to discuss school meals and recent federal and state program changes. Here's our conversation. During the pandemic, Congress passed the Families First Coronavirus Act, which gave the U.S. Department of Agriculture the ability to offer waivers that gave more flexibility about how they were distributing foods. It also allowed for the temporary offering of free meals for all students. Um, so this act, unfortunately, is expiring at the end of September. It was extended from the original June 30th date. Uh, how will the ending of this bill impact students and their families? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really important question. As you noted, Congress acted very quickly when the pandemic began to give USDA the flexibility to really allow the programs to reimagine themselves. It allowed uh, the school meals to be served, you know, even when school was not in session because schools were, were closed, obviously. So it allowed parents to come and pick up meals in parking lots, maybe pick up a week's worth of meals instead of a day's worth. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so just a lot of op like operational flexibility to adapt for the fact that serving kids in a classroom was just not something that was going to be doable. And then the other very important um, aspect of what Congress allowed us to do, as you mentioned, was to uh, al allow all schools to serve 
meals to kids at no cost. Uh, unlike, you know, in the traditional program, as many of your viewers probably know, uh, mo in most cases, families have to fill out applications if they want to receive free or reduced price meals, right. and only those students receive the meals uh, for free. Um, so that was a very significant difference. And, and we, we, we frankly at USDA, as part in the Biden administration, had hoped that Congress would extend that for another year because we know that schools are still, schools and communities are still dealing with the impacts of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, but they, they didn't do that. And so the, really the biggest change for the coming year is that uh, from, from many schools across the country, families will have to fill out those applications in order for their children to get free or reduced price meals. Hmm. Um, but fortunately in Massachusetts in July, uh, July 28th this year, um, Governor Baker actually signed the free meals for all into law. So that will actually extend free meals for an additional year for our, our students here. Um, can you talk about the, the benefits of school meals for our students? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, there's just a lot of evidence that school meals uh, are, are a really have a really healthy impact on children. Uh, we, there was a study done um, not long ago, actually at Tufts University, uh, which is located in this, this area, and we, it found that school meals are typically among the healthiest meals uh, that are offered for kids. It looked at sort of different places kids can get meals, and school meals uh, scored at the very top. Um, we also know that uh, we've been working in partnership with all of the thousands of folks across the country that run school meal programs to make school meals healthy over the last 15 years or so. And there's a good amount of research that shows that that has been really impactful. School meals are a lot healthier than they were uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago when folks remember um, back to, to, to when things, um, how their school meals looked when they were young. Mm -hmm. So I think there's just really compelling evidence that school meals uh, are, are very healthy. And certainly having a steady source of school meals during the day helps kids you know, do those basic things like focus on, on what they're trying to learn in class instead of you know, fidgeting around because they're hungry or missing class time because they're going to the school nurse because they have, you know, they're, they're having cramps or headaches because they didn't eat breakfast that day. So, so clearly school meals are, are very valuable. And I, I will just take this opportunity to really commend Massachusetts and a number of other states across the country that you know took a look at the universal programs that were operating during the last two years and and you know saw something of value and decided to go ahead and make the investment with state dollars to keep those programs running. Okay, and um, as we're speaking more about food um, in Massachusetts, one in five families are food insecure. When we look at the breakdown of those families, mm -hmm. um, we're seeing that Latino families and black families are particularly impacted. Um, they actually face two times the rate of food insecurity uh, than white families. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the barriers that have prevented students and families from participating in, in getting school meals. Yeah, and we are, we are deeply concerned about uh, some of those, those differentials that you mentioned uh, across populations and are, are very committed to, to addressing them. We, uh, we know a few things about why families don't apply for school meals or children don't participate. Um, sometimes there can be a concern uh, about turning in an application for government benefits of any sort even though the fact is that any child who's attending school has the, has the right, the opportunity to apply for a free or reduced price school meals. But sometimes families have concerns just about engaging with the government around any kind of assistance program, maybe concerns about that it will raise questions about um, citizenship or, mm. or just uh, uh, 
preference to keep a distance from, from engaging with government programs. That can be a barrier to turning in an application. We also know, unfortunately, uh, as much as uh, we, we try to fight it, that the notion of um, receiving free meals in schools can still have stigma for some kids and in some communities. Uh, you know, they just don't want to participate because they feel like the other kids will know and they just don't, they just don't want to be any, any part of that. Uh, and that, frankly, is one of the real um, benefits that we see associated with universal meals. When, when, the, when, when meals at no cost are available to every child in the school, there's just not an issue about who's getting free meals. Right. So Massachusetts is one of five states that's uh, providing a universal meals for students. So they join Vermont, Minnesota, uh, Colorado, and New York. What will it take to have universal meals countrywide, uni- uh, nationwide? Yeah, well, in terms of that being available nationwide as part of the federal program, that would require action by Congress. Uh, because as, as you noted at the outset, the reason we were able, that USDA was able to allow that during the pandemic was because Congress gave us a special piece of legislation to allow us to do that, and that expired. So Congress certainly could make the decision to make universal meals uh, available nationwide. Now, there's obviously a cost impact on that, and, and so that's you know, something that, that lawmakers will need to, to consider, uh, how the significant benefits weigh out against the costs. Um, but I will also say that, you know, as you noted, there are just a number of states that have decided to move ahead. And, you know, we, we see that there are, there's also another set of states that are considering uh, making investments and expanding the availability of universal meals. Um, so I think that will provide a great opportunity for all of us uh, to learn about what the universal programs may have to offer from seeing these states. And these states are quite diverse. Uh, experience it over the next few years. It's a great um, natural experiment, if you will. Mm. Um, And I know that you're in town right now for the Farm to School Conference, which is starting on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the conference, uh, who's going to be involved in what it means for um, school meals in the state? Sure, absolutely. Well, let me start off by just just singing the praises of Farm to School to start with. So uh, we've we've had a Farm to School program at the Food Nutrition Service for about uh, 12 or 14 years. Uh, We uh, we operate a grant program uh, to help support schools operating Farm to School efforts. Uh, And when you hear me say Farm to School, what I'm talking about is anything from schools really making uh, an effort to buy local foods that are raised by local producers, mm. um, but it, and it also includes things like establishing school gardens, uh, bringing education about uh, farming and raising your own food into the classroom. It's just, just a whole range of things. And I will tell you, I've worked in school meals for a long time, and it's something that really en- can energize a school and a community around um, understanding food and healthier eating. Now, with respect to the conference, uh, the conference is uh, being hosted by USDA, and we are bringing together uh, several groups of folks. We We've invited uh, from all over the country departments of agriculture and departments of education to encourage them to work together within their states to bring producers and schools together. And then we've also um, we're, we've invited uh, several hundred of the uh, entities that have received our grants mm-hmm. so that they can talk about their projects and learn from one another. All right. And uh, for individuals who are interested in taking part of the conference or people want to learn more about the Farm to School grants program, how can they do so? Well, I would say the best way to learn about the Farm to School is, uh, you know, just Google 
USDA Farm to School, and you'll get to our website, and there's a lot of information there. But what you should really do if you want to, 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 to learn more and stay engaged around Farm to School is subscribe to something called The Dirt, which is our monthly newsletter about all things Farm to School. And if you just go to our website, you'll, you can sign up, and every month you'll get a newsletter full of really cool and interesting and inspiring information about Farm to School efforts across the country. Antonia Edwards is the political strategy coordinator for the U.S. Freedman Project of Northeast, where she works with colleague Jonathan Bryant, who serves as the political coordinator and community engagement coordinator. Together, they've worked steadily on addressing reparations for African-American descendants of slaves. In our conversation, we discussed the federal government's failing to make restitutions and U.S. Freedman Project's community conversation series happening this Saturday at 4 p.m. in Roxbury. Here's the interview. So we are the U.S. Freedmen Project, and our primary goal is to reactivate, re-initiate the Freedmen's Bureau, the Freedmen Act, and also the bankrupt Freedmen's Bank. We do know that um, in November 2021, it was reactivated. However, we feel as though it's felonious because $8 million was injected into it to um, basically benefit all minorities. However, um, when it was initiated back in 1865, um, formerly um, enslaved um, chattel slave people brought their monies into it, and then the money was stolen, and they've never been, the rights have never been wronged. We have seen states such as California, Illinois, and uh, Minnesota actually uh, mm-hmm. do the work to um, make policies and make a plan. So the question is, why has the federal government stalled when it comes to reparations? So if- if I may, if I may say so, um, that's been a bone of contention and a thorn in American freedmen's side. The bottom line is, is that America, the U.S. government, owes a debt. It's not for a taxpayer or an individual to pay the debt for reparations, which is a misconception for most people who are against reparations for the formerly enslaved um, people. Um, so the bone of contention on our side is every other race was been mis- mis- mistreated, whether it be the Japanese. The Native Americans, whether it be the Jewish and Jewish people from the Holocaust, all suffered atrocities. However, nobody ever questions their reparations, and we're still paying for the Jewish um, Holocaust reparations to the survivors and also the, the defendants as well. So we do know that um, John Connors initiated in 1989 the HR 40 bill. He then passed on to Sheila Jackson Lee, who is the head of the CBC, which is the Congressional Black Caucus. She has sat on this bill for 30 years. Wow. And this bill is stale. It keeps getting reinitiated every single year. What's really, depre- what's really depressing to us is that it just shouldn't be a study for U.S. child slavery. We were kidnapped from Africa. We don't know where we came from. We don't have any historical context or records to our lineage like other races, like Italian, Jewish, whether it be Scottish, English, or Irish, whatever. So we're the only people that can't identify with our ancestralism. And so we didn't just migrate here on our free accord. So what is it? What study needs to be done? Um, we, we constantly look at different um, races that are being um, offered settlement fees or offering different reestablishment fees. And we don't understand why we're constantly being overlooked. So we don't think it needs a study. We just need for them to pay the reparations for the 250 years of um, free labor. Mm. 
Uh, and Jonathan, I'd love to bring you into the conversation. When we talk about slavery, it's very easy to talk about or to think about the South, but slavery also had a presence in the North. Can you talk a little bit more about the legacy of slavery, particularly in Boston? Yes, well, actually, I'm, I'm from Connecticut, and I do have a, my ancestor premise was one of the first of 300 slaves to be sold into New London, Connecticut, as he, he was a little boy. And uh, so he, he went on to have a son, uh, Joe, uh, um, excuse me, he was sold to Ebenezer Lathrop of, of Canterbury, Connecticut, you know, as a little boy, he was a little boy. And he went on to have a son named Joe. Joe fought in the Revolutionary War and was emancipated in 1778. So my people been here roughly around the late 1600s. Mm. Uh, yeah. And, and, so for what, and so for us, what we find is most people think that slavery only exists in the South. However, um, in Connecticut, Eames was a, a shipbuilder. He took black um, slaves from Connecticut and shipped them down to the Caribbean and traded them for African slaves, just like the Brown Brothers did in Rhode Island. And then also Faneuil Hall, right now, we're going through a lot of controversy about that, about renaming it and also paying homage to it being a slave auction block. Um, so there's a lot of slavery that took place inside the North that a lot of people um, don't necessarily know of or believe in. Yeah, at one, at also, may I add on, at one point in time, the, uh, the Northeast up around this area, Connecticut, well, just the Northeast, were, were uh, like the number one slave holding place at, at one point in time in history. So, you know, it was, uh, slavery was up, it was very, very, very strong. Yeah, it's it's sobering when you think about the um, the roots of it up here in the Northeast. Um, and I know that this Saturday, the U.S. Freedman Project of uh, New England is hosting the first of the community conversations um, at yes. the Roxbury Public Library. Uh, can you share mm -hmm. what attendees can expect and what you hope uh, to gain from these conversations? So we're not hosting the first community conversations. We're hosting the first of the community conversations of our time. And so what that means is that we were basically bringing Dr. Darity, who wrote from here to equality. Um, he co-wrote that with his wife, A. Kirsten Mullen, and he has a blueprint to reparations. We are looking for cash reparations as well as looking for tangibles. Um, he has the blueprint as to $16 trillion, which equivalents to about $850,000 for each descendant of slavery. We're also bringing um, Chris Lodge, and he is from California's Just Equitable um, Commission, who is working with Shirley Weber um, with the California Commission right now. So I think the people in our community need to see that people are really working behind the scenes. I think a lot of people that we speak to have no clue what's going on. And so we want to be the first in our community to bring the resources to them so they can hear it from the horse's mouth. We're talking about restitution. We're talking about restorative justice. Um, mm -hmm. what, what are some of the major differences uh, between restorative justice and reparations? Two things that we, we talk right. about a lot in this time. From my perspective, reparations is for the 250 years of free labor as being kidnapped Africans that were brought to America and used as chattel slavery. And so it's a lineage base. Everything with us is lineage based. So if you have descendants that were you with the descendants of US chattel slavery, that's reparation. Restorative justice and restitution goes to those who have been affected simply because of the slave um, and white supremacy in America. And so I think that we get a lot of division because a lot of people think that everybody black 
deserves um, reparations. And reparations is for the harm that was done for the enslavement. However, there are other agendas like the restitution, restorative justice that goes to anybody who migrated here of their own accord since 1965. But if you have no lineage here prior to 1900s, then that would be reparations and that separates the difference. All right. And for those watching who want to take part in this weekend's conversation or want to lend their support to the work that's going on at U.S. Freedmen Project New England, how can they do so? We do have a link that you can sign up for um, to attend the, the, the event. It's going to be virtual and in person. So we need a headcount for those who are going to attend in person. And again, we thank you so much for using this platform to bring this message. We really think that you know this is a start to healing in our community and also be getting people educated and aware of what's going on because our job is to uplift and empower our people. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. For BNN News, I'm Faith Maffedon.